For the week of January 20th, 2014, this is the Energy Gang Podcast from Green Tech Media. Welcome. Great to have you with us this week. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media in our nation's capital of Washington, D.C. And it is the highlight of my week when I get together with my two favorite energy pundits and we become an entity greater than the sum of its parts, the energy gang. Also here in Washington is Catherine Hamilton, the founder of the clean energy public policy consulting firm 38 North Solutions. Catherine, anything interesting happened in the last week? Yeah, but we're going to talk about it on the podcast. So everybody sit tight. So everything interesting for you is energy then. (laughs) You got that right. That's kind of my life, I'm afraid. (laughs) And in New York, it is Jigger Shah, an energy futurist and author of the book Creating Climate Wealth. In rushing from a morning meeting, he got 30 seconds to sit down and here he is. Hey, Jigger. Hey, how are you doing? Excellent. And, uh, you know, we were sending some emails around today about this live show that we're doing at the Department of Transportation at the beginning of February. And you sent like, uh, I don't know, five or six headshots. I didn't realize how many biopics you have. Well, you know, that, <laughs> that, that, that's what comes when you're uh, standing in the wake of Richard Branson. <laughs> I, want, I want to post them to the website and have uh, our audience vote on which one they like best. So then maybe you can choose one. That would be very useful for me. (laughs) All right. Well, we've got another great roundup of topics this week. First, we're going to talk about Google. Google has made a splash in clean tech investment, including the recent $3.2 billion acquisition of Nest. Nest is a company that has made uh, thermostats and smoke detectors sexy, or at least tried to. And we're going to ask what it all means for the internet giant Google. Then we'll ask whether the 2013 rise in U.S. CO2 emissions is a blip or a worrisome trend. Finally, we'll dive into global coal consumption trends, which are also showing signs of change. And of course, at the end of the show, we'll tell you something you may not know. All right, let's do this. Google has been active in clean energy since 2007, when it started its RE Less Than C campaign to invest in up-and-coming technologies that could become competitive with coal. A lot has changed since then, however. RE less than C is no longer, and Google has moved into direct project investment, pouring more than $1 billion into wind and solar farms. It's also made strategic investments in companies more consistent with its business. Its venture arm recently invested $258 million into the car service company Uber, which may eventually complement its push for autonomous driving. And in big news in the last week, Google bought Nest for $3.2 billion dollars, giving it away into the home automation space. Nest was founded by former Apple engineers who wanted to make unloved products in the home sexy and intelligent. They started with a thermostat and recently moved into a smoke detector and planned to get deeper into the home. So what does all this mean for Google as an energy company? Let's start with the Nest news. Uh, Jigger, your reaction to what this means for both Nest and Google? Um, So I was actually in Silicon Valley at the time of the announcement, and so everybody was buzzing about it. I think that the consensus on the street in Silicon Valley was that really this was about acquiring Tony and the management team. Google really wants top-notch hardware people, and you just can't get any better than the Nest team on the hardware side. Um, So I think that's what the $3.2 billion premium was for. But you know, when you think more broadly about Google's strategy and energy – it really isn't very 
clear or easy. Arun Majumdar, for instance, left DOE and went there um, to figure out the next generation utility. Um, you've got a billion dollars a year now going in from Google's treasury into buying solar assets, but they're really the most conservative investments that I've seen in the U.S., so they're not really doing anything funky with that. But they have Makani Wind, which is this sort of kite company, um, which I'm not quite sure is going to get diverse, uh, fully commercialized. And they're, they're sort of their geothermal biz work that they did a lot of uh, investing in uh, seems to have gone by the wayside. So I don't know that Google actually has this um, plan behind the acquisition. Yeah, I thought if you look at Google Ventures, all all of the small companies that they're you know really vest investing in, they're much more sort of social media, um, sharing economy based, and so for them to take a hardware investment is a little different. I also feel like this company, which only right now does thermostats, smoke and smoke and CO detection. It's like that's not really enough. They need to start doing other things. So you see all these commercials for, you know, the guy being able to turn everything in his house off uh, from his front, from you know the neighbor's front porch, or his dad turns it off. I think it's a Verizon commercial. It's really clever. But it just seems like a thermostat and smoke detector is maybe not enough. Well, Nest has been pretty clear that they're going to go well beyond that, and that's why they raised a lot of their early rounds because they told Kleiner Perkins, for example, that they were much more than a thermostat company long term. Well, I mean, the one thing um, the one thing that I agree with is that I do think 2014 is definitely going to be the year of big data. And I definitely think that um, home, home automation is part of that. And so to the extent that Google wants a jump into home automation, this is probably a good acquisition on the home automation big data front. I do think it's a great way for them to get into the home automation space where they've floundered a bit. Of course, they rolled out their power meter in 2009, which was a piece of hardware and software program that allowed consumers to track their energy use. And it was energy exclusive. So cu customers weren't ready to plunk down the money just to track their energy use and maybe get a marginal change. Um, a lot of the strategies now have revolved around existing services in the home. How can cable companies get in this? How can security firms get in this and use automation that's already in the home to, uh, and broaden it into energy? With that said, I don't think Google here is seeing this as an energy play exclusively. It's going to give them a great look into the home energy automation space. But this is a, another way for Google to touch its consumers uh, in when it comes to physical products, it gets them further offline and use internet based products to see how their customers are moving about their homes, uh, going about their daily lives. And, and this allows them to uh, sell products to them. It allows them to advertise and it allows them to um, build their business off of consumer behavior. Yeah, I'll be I'll be watching this because I still haven't decided which way I think it, that will end up going. You know, you've got the cable guys, the Verizon FiOS, and those folks already in the home, and as it's it's really easy for them to add um, the ability to manage other parts of the home. And this is sort of the first foray for well, it's not the first foray for Google into hardware, obviously, but it's it's sort of a, a next foray into it. And I just wonder uh, how consumers will react to it. Will react to because they're used to seeing Google in a different way. So it'll be interesting to see if they go for this or if they instead 
instead turn to Verizon or some other carrier. Well, there were you know, some companies that said they were going to ditch their Nest product because of the Google acquisition. It was a small number of customers, but because after the NSA revelations, Google has become uh, somewhat of a hot potato when it comes to data privacy, we've seen reactions from customers that are upset. Well, you know, I'm on the Android platform with my phone, and um, it's pretty amazing to me how Google mines my Gmail and actually, like, you know, sort of checks me in for flights, tells me if they're late or whatever, without me even prompting them. Like, it, it syncs with my calendar, so it tells me literally, you know, 23 minutes before I have to be at a meeting that it'll take you 23 minutes to get there. Um, so, I mean, it is getting a little scary, and so it'll be interesting to sort of see um, how they integrate the Nest stuff on the Android platform. Ultimately, though, I think the, uh, I think the, potential of the product is going to trump privacy concerns. People always talk about how weirded out they are about Facebook ads being so relevant to their interests, about Google mining the information in their emails. But people are using these services in record numbers. And my guess is that um, the, the, the product benefits are going to trump many of the privacy concerns. You'll see some customers turned off, but the vast majority who may be concerned are probably still going to buy the product. Yeah, which is why I'm really fascinated and want to watch how the hard, this hardware is going to evolve and, and include a lot more of the systems within the home. So there are two elements to Google's investment. One is, these, is the more customer-facing investments like a Nest, um, its Android at home platform, um, some of the autonomous vehicle investments it's made, the investments in Uber. And then you have these project-level investments in wind and solar, you know, it's invested a billion dollars, more than a billion dollars since 2009 in wind and solar farms, the latest being $75 million in a farm in Texas this week, um, developed by Pattern Energy. And it invested $350 million into solar city and clean power finance for funds to develop thousands of solar systems. So this is a different element of the business. Jigger, what's going on here? I mean, some people speculate that Google's trying to be the next utility, but it seems like um, they're trying to do this for energy related to their operations and um, as a corporate sustainability move rather than a deep move into being a utility, so to speak? I think the explanation around what they're doing is largely PR. Um, when you talk to major corporations that pay taxes like UPS, um, for years they've had huge investment strategies into affordable housing tax credits because they were actually quite um, a good investment instead of paying taxes to the government. Um, and so I think Google's really just you know tax planning with these investments. I don't actually think that this is a proactive move to do anything but make good, solid investments, making 6 to 8% returns, um, and then in some cases, of course, higher, um, while being able to use the tax benefits. When you look at the type of projects they're investing in, they're literally more conservative than Wells Fargo, MetLife, and MassMutual in terms of their investment strategy on this side of the house. And then when you think broadly about what they're doing, you know, I can't think of one place where Google's relevant in the utility space. They're not really relevant on smart grid or big data where they should be. Um, they're not relevant on um, renewable energy in terms of policy or standards or any of that stuff. Um, I don't think they're overly relevant on um, even inverter design or, or that kind of stuff. And so on the, on the car sharing side, you know, maybe that could be more relevant, but I don't think that they're really moving the frontiers on electricity.
Yeah, but in 2010, FERC approved Google to perform as a utility with, you know, selling energy capacity services at market rates. And so I don't know. I think as we look to the utility of the future, Google's definitely positioned in a bunch of ways. Yeah, but every every major corporation has filed for that, Catherine. Bank of America um, has done the same filing. Lots of folks do. The reason they do it is because when you do direct energy um, – contracts, which many of these folks do in the 20 plus states are deregulated. Um, it's valuable to have that filing. But I haven't seen any of these companies who've done that filing, including Amazon, um, actually do anything more sophisticated. You know, the company went through this interesting shift in the last couple of years. So I mentioned the RE Less Than C initiative announced in the fall of 2007, and Google invested tens of millions of dollars into eSolar, into the geothermal drilling company Potter Drilling, into the uh, enhanced geothermal developer Alta Rock. And guess what? It found that uh, R&D and energy is not like the tech world, and it takes a long time to get to market. And so Google really scaled back those efforts in favor of the favorable economics of uh, project-level investments. So I thought that that was a really interesting shift. And so even though Google has made these venture investments into some of the more innovative companies out there, those are less capital-intensive investments. Those are products that can scale faster and are much more consumer-focused. Yeah, but I don't. But I don't think it's a shift, Stephen. I mean, I think they're still spending that money in Arun uh, Majumdar's group, and so I just think it's it, there are different buckets of money. But I did actually write a piece um, in response to the sixty minutes um, um, fiasco uh, on GigaOM, and part of what the argument that I make is that you know, for most energy projects, to really take on ten billion dollars of deployment investment, it requires a hundred thousand hours of field. Um, experience, and I think Google learned that firsthand. Yeah, absolutely. So what makes Google better at innovating than energy companies? Uh, you know, the company may not be the utility of the future necessarily, but they are certainly a heck of a lot better than most uh, power companies, car companies, and other energy companies out there. What do you guys think makes Google so different? Is it just culture? Yeah, I think there's a couple things. I think one is that um, you know, Google clearly is a hugely profitable company. I think actually in terms of return on invested capital, it's by far the most uh, profitable in the history of venture capital, uh, even more than Microsoft. And so you have all this money that they can use to do R&D and interesting projects and not really move the needle. Their stock price is at an all-time high still. And so, and I agree that the culture is a big part of this. Um, they could you know, be like Microsoft and really like squirrel away a lot of that money or Apple for that matter. Apple isn't actually that innovative outside of its core businesses. They're not doing weird stuff in cars and electricity and lots of other places. And so it probably is culture there. And they're perfectly positioned in, you know, the Rob Day, three things you have to do to be a smart investor nowadays, which is using distributed assets, be capital, you know, invest in capital light companies, and then have a holistic approach to markets. And Google's got all that. They're able to do that because they have the data. That's right. All right. Well, we move into the broader energy sector now where the EIA, Jigger's favorite agency, as we've heard, has released some concerning news for the U.S. Preliminary data show that CO2 emissions rose by 2% in 2013. Now, between 2005 and 2012, U.S. emissions fell by 12%. The economic calamity of 2008 played a major role, but so too did the rise of natural gas in the power sector, which started to eat away at coal and the fact that Americans were driving less. 
But as natural gas prices rose last year due to a colder winter and higher use of the resource, coal generation started rebounding. So what exactly does this mean for future years, as the Obama administration looks to cut emissions 17% below 2005 levels by the end of the decade? Catherine, your thoughts? Uh, A worrisome trend or a temporary blip? What's your take on the EIA data? You know, I'm an optimist, so I'm thinking it's a temporary blip. Um, If you just look at what we've done so far, since 2010, there have been 20,000 megawatts of coal retired. And we're positioned to shut down another 45,000 megawatts over the next decade, probably in the next couple of years. Um, So that's 19% of the install capacity that's going to shut down. And EPA is going to have a huge impact on that. I think beyond that, it's just that it's not, you know, the clean coal technologies are not cost effective right now. I know that the loan guarantee program or the loan program at DOE is looking at, you know, how do we, you know, how do, how do we incentivize those? How do we give loans to folks who are really looking at trying to make coal more efficient? Well, that's good if you can make it more efficient um, as it as the trajectory goes to shut it down. I think, you know, I, I see this as a blip. I just don't see the industry rising from the ashes, so to speak. I completely agree with Catherine. I mean, I look natural gas prices skyrocketed up last year to 450 a million BTU, which is roughly a 20% rate increase on generation costs in the Northeast, which is you know pretty substantial. And um, that made coal more cost effective. So folks went back to coal last year, but those coal plants are still slated to be shut down by 2020. So what about the existing coal plants? I mean, if gas stays in the 4 to $5 range for the next Uh, decade or two, which is what a lot of analysis firms say, does that make it uh, more economical for the existing coal plants, the newer ones that may not get shut down to continue burning coal? I mean, do you think that they're just going to keep spinning out generation? Well, on a variable price basis, uh, coal right now is cheaper than gas at 450 a million BTU. And so, so if you had two perfectly reasonable strategies, the coal one would win over the natural gas one. That being said, when you look at what wholesale prices have been doing in most of the country, wholesale prices are much lower today because of all the renewable energy on the grid and the merit order impacts, which means that renewable energy has to be allowed to always run, whereas the other technologies can be shut down depending on demand. And so that means that even if the coal plants are cheaper to run the natural gas, they're still unprofitable to run. So one concerning thing is that this shows... uh how much work we have to do. So I agree that we're in a transformative stage here in the electric power sector with coal on the decline. But even with the strong deployment numbers we've seen in renewables in November, all of new capacity additions were renewable energy. Emissions jumped with uh, a very modest increase in coal burning. So I think we can all agree that things are not looking good for coal, but it also shows that you know, the renewables industry is still small in the grand scheme, and and it's going to take a lot to really eat away at coal's uh, influence on the electric power mix um, with renewables. Yeah, and we really have to watch what EPA does. So, you know, they're going to regulate, and they've put the draft rule, which is close to final, it'll be finalized in June of this year, uh, to regulate uh, new power plants and existing, they've got existing power plants as well. But 
part of what they're going to be doing state by state is coming up with some kind of a credit scheme. So clean technologies, clean applications like efficiency, demand response, all of those different applications and renewable technologies are all going to play a pretty key part of that. So you look at a state like West Virginia, which is one of the biggest coal exporting states, one of the three big coal exporting states. They have a 25% RPS by 2025. They're growing their wind industry significantly. I mean, it's a fairly small state, but they're growing it. Um, they just had this awful chemical spill that was related to their coal industry in the Elk River in Charleston that just contaminated their water. People weren't, weren't able to drink water. I think you're going to see public opinion starting to move. Um, the issue at this point is going to be politics. But I do think you're thinking about this a little bit. Um, sort of squirrely, Stephen, in the sense that, look, I mean, I think that 60 plus percent of new capacity additions last year were renewables in the U.S. Um, that's been the trend since 2007, so it's not a new trend. Um, when you think about all the renewable portfolio standards in the country, all of them are back end loaded on purpose because we wanted to reduce the costs of implementation, and we've succeeded because implementation costs are a lot cheaper now than they were five years ago. So you're going to see almost... 100% of all new capacity additions that come online over the next five years are going to be renewables. And we're on an exponential growth trajectory, particularly in the solar industry right now. So, I mean, I, I just, you know, I just think that this notion that we're small, you know, et cetera, right now is just patently not true. Yeah, but energy generation is much different than capacity, as everyone listening will, knows. And I, I just, you know, when we look at, uh, capacity additions it only tells a small piece of the story yeah but you know but the thing is we started from you know 0.1 percent non-hydro in 2000 and now we're about five percent non-hydro and now and we're accelerating most of that capacity was added in the last five years not in the preceding nine years um and so when you look at the acceleration curves and just sort of sort of the you know um the exponential growth curve i, I just don't see you know, how this is anything but a glowingly amazing story. Yeah, I just would not dispel the fact that Congress does not understand that. Um, and they don't necessarily see those facts. So Mitch McConnell, um, the Senate uh, minority leader, um, introduced a motion for a Congressional Review Act on EPA, which would basically shut down everything they're doing on greenhouse gas emissions. And he has 39 co-sponsors. Um, I mean, there are a few Republicans that have not signed up, Ayotte, um, Collins, Graham, Heller, and Corker. But there are a lot of Ds that they might that may uh, not be able to vote against this. Um, it, it only takes a majority vote. But um, you know, there are a lot of D's that rely on oil and gas support and that are that are facing pretty tough reelection campaigns like Mary Landrew and Manchin and Begich and Pryor. And these folks who are really in heavy fossil states height camp. And you know, who knows if we're going to be able to have 50 votes to defeat that uh, motion. It'll certainly pass clear, you know, easily in the House and the president will veto it. But that's bad for the whole messaging. So the, the word is not getting to Congress that that this is a good news story for renewables. No, I would say it exactly the opposite, Catherine. I think that the word has gotten to Congress and they're scared out of their mind. 
And so that's why they're doing these things. There's two different pieces to this, right? One is actually building solar and wind. That's all already taken care of out of the state regulations that we're working towards, whether it's a 33% goal in California or 20% in some states or 25% in other states. Separately, there is a moral outrage component from the environmental movement around prematurely shutting down coal plants that maybe could have run for an additional five or six years. And that's what you're talking about with the CRA. But honestly, like, you know, I, I mean, I don't think that that actually has anything to do with the trajectory of new renewables being added to the grid. So even if the CRA thing happens and EPA decides not to, you know, pass these final rules, et cetera, which would be a travesty, you're still going to get these coal plants shutting down because as there's more wind and solar in the merit order curves within the independent system operators, then the clearing price for wholesale power will keep going down, which means that these coal plants will still go out of business. Let's get into our third topic now and expand the conversation about coal to the rest of the world. It's pretty clear that coal is on the ropes in the U.S., but in developing countries, particularly China, which will make up 60% of demand over the next five years, coal is still a go-to resource. However, the IEA reports that global coal demand is slowing, largely because China is modestly scaling back its use. Still, King Coal remains on its throne for the foreseeable future, a troublesome trend for anyone concerned about climate change. Uh, Jigger, broadening this globally, what do you think some of the key levers are that could help moderate coal use in the coming years, or that already are moderating coal use? Well, there's two big levers that are moderating coal use now. So, I mean, the Chinese have, manda- have, have basically announced that they're going to hit peak coal in China in 2015, um, which is their, will be their highest use, and they'll go down from there. The Indians are roughly the same. Um, and the, both of them are doing it for you know basically two reasons. One, imported coal from Australia, Mozambique, and Indonesia is roughly $100 a ton or more. Um, and at that price point, it's just not worth burning coal. And the second problem they both have is finding access to the water sources necessary to do cooling of these coal plants is turning out to be amazingly difficult, um, particularly in a country like India, where already 50% of all the freshwater resources are being used to cool coal plants. And so that's why coal is slowing down in those markets. I think why you're seeing coal continue to accelerate globally is because there's a lot of countries that are new to the power sector, particularly in Africa, but also in parts of Southeast Asia, like Indonesia and other places where they've had rich coal deposits for a long time, but just haven't built coal plants to use them. The resource issue here is really big. So the World Resources Institute put out a study last year showing that 60% of China's planned 642 gigawatts of coal plants are in water-constrained areas. And those plants are located in regions with only 5% of water supplies. And then what you have is this realization um, about resource constraints mixed with a growing middle class concerned about pollution. And so now China is really starting to realize that uh, people are concerned about air pollution. They're protesting in the streets. They're protesting against new coal-powered plants. And they've actually banned the construction of new coal-fired power plants around Beijing, Shanghai, and, and Guangzhou, Uh, which was absolutely huge. And those bans have actually moderated coal use in the last year. I mean, those bans have played a central role because China is such a big consumer of coal. 
Yeah, what do you guys think of these 40 projects they have, uh, China has on the books to convert coal to synthetic gas and synthetic liquids? That that strikes me as resource intensive as well. I think it's their equivalent to the clean coal stuff we're doing in the U.S. I mean, I, I think China, you know, I don't think China cares about climate change, and I certainly don't think they care about renewable energy. China cares about the fact that there are people literally dying in the streets in Beijing and Shanghai right now from the pollution. And I think that they are trying to stave off uh, another revolution in their government um, and trying to figure out how they actually diversify their energy mix to be able to keep, um, you know, the Chinese economy going is really important to them. So they're trying all sorts of things. Yeah, you said it really well. I think that's right, Jigger. I, I, I mean, I do believe that China does care about climate change when you look at its impact on resources. But the central driver is pressure from citizens that are putting these regulations in place that's going to change their energy mix over the coming years, which will feed into their global climate targets. I absolutely think that's the central driver here. The, the one other thing I would say is I was in Manila last year. Um, actually, I actually think we did a show from there. And, um, and what was amazing to me was how many of the Asian Development Bank people were still pushing coal. And they were offended when I said, that you know you're not making the best decisions on behalf of the people that live there, um, and I think that there really is a genuine disagreement between some of these sort of backward people in the multilateral development banks and some of the folks who really know the data at the International Energy Agency and other places who are saying, look, you know, like it's not just that that climate change is important. It's also that, you know, burning new coal and building new coal plants in Myanmar and some of these other places is just not economically smart for these guys' economies. So have we reached peak coal globally? Well, I think according to the International Energy Agency, we have not. But my sense is, is that with China declaring very, very publicly that they're going to reach peak coal in 2015, um, and India basically saying the same thing. My sense is, is that those are the two big markets, and so peak coal globally will occur very soon after that. And, 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 my, and I also think that now that we're entering 2014, there really is a great realization by the people who actually look at the data that the solutions that we have to offer are far cheaper than building new coal. All right, let's finish up the show and tell our listeners something they don't know. Catherine Hamilton, lay it on us. Yeah, so I, I know that uh, Jigger was saying that there's some bad stuff in the omnibus, um, but there also is some good news out of the omnibus. So Congress finally passed and the president signed a bill to fund the federal government through the end of this fiscal year. It relieved some of the sequestration uh, cuts that had been made to efficiency and renewables programs, as well as ARPA-E and other you know, um, programs that were important in Department of Energy. So, um, you know, some of those, you know, energy efficiency and renewable energy is up, you know, 37% from the sequestration. Fossil is up a lot too. It's up 87% and nukes are up 12%. ARPA-E is up about 10%. But what it's done is it's relieved a little bit of the the pretty devastating caps and cuts. And I think it will allow some of these programs to move things around, to focus better, to set their priorities. They weren't allowed to change anything. And now they'll be able to have a little bit um, more ability to 
to change things up and focus on the things they want to. I know that efficiency and renewables is going to focus on bioenergy and advanced manufacturing. And uh, of note, in the, the the director of the advanced manufacturing office is Mark Johnson, who came out of ARPA-E, who's really, really good. And I think uh, that's that's to the good. So um, it's there's a bit of relief here for the next few months. So there were a lot of concerns about the omnibus, and now you're saying that it's pretty decent news for the industry? Yeah, it's not bad at all. Jigger, what do you have? Tell us something we don't know. So um, there was a letter, an open letter to the president that was submitted by most of the environmental groups yesterday, uh, led by Earth Justice, that basically, I think, specifically called out the administration really for the first time on the fact that this all of the above strategy for energy is not a strategy at all. I mean, it's something I've been saying for a long time, but the fact that all of the environmental groups, major environmental groups signed on to it, and the Washington Post did a big spread on it uh, yesterday, I think really tells us that um, the environmental groups are finally willing to hold this president accountable, I think, to either to picking a side. They're, he's either for meeting climate change goals or he's for all of the above, but he can't be for both. Well, the pressure is increasing. So speaking of pressure, mine relates to the cleantech industry's pressure on 60 Minutes for that cleantech crash uh, story it released at the beginning of the month. So we talked a lot about that story and the problems in it, and uh, the cleantech industry has been really aggressive in pushing back at 60 Minutes for clarifications. Vinod Kosla wrote this great open letter to the producers of 60 Minutes, just giving this blow-by-blow account of what they got wrong in the story. But... um. I mentioned something on Twitter the other day that I thought was really fascinating. Since 60 Minutes ran that widely panned piece, we've covered at Green Tech Media a bunch of new financing announcements. The grid storage company Aquion Energy closed a $55 million Series D round. The smart window company View closed a $100 million Series C round uh, led by the investment firm um, with ties to Walmart. The competitive clean energy supplier Ethical Electric closed an $11 million Series A round. And of course, as we've been talking about, Google bought Nest for $3.2 billion. And that all came within roughly a week of the 60 Minutes story. So I found that really ironic. And, uh, you know, it just shows that the, the producers of the show were really out of touch with what's happening in the industry. I will admit there were fair points in the show about some of the failures in venture capital, but if you look at the activity in this space so close to the story, it does show how out of touch they were on a lot of elements. Yeah, no, I agree. I think uh, 60 Minutes will uh, hopefully think twice about crossing us next time. (laughs) And that is the final word. Time to wrap up the show. For some links to stories we chatted about, go to our podcast page at greentechmedia.com. To subscribe to this show, you can find us at SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher Radio. We've got a good old-fashioned RSS feed there you can integrate into the player of your choosing as well, and that's at greentechmedia.com. Thank you so much to the folks who sent testimonials over the last week after I asked them in our previous episode. We're always looking for more. If you want to share your thoughts about why you listen to the program, send them to me at Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com, and that will help us in some of our show marketing. And if you're motivated to do that, you can post some comments to our iTunes page or Stitcher Radio, and that will help more people find the show. With that, we are out of here until next time. Catherine Hamilton, have an excellent week. 
Thank you. And I would just make a recommendation for this holiday weekend that if you are in the Washington, D.C. area and you have not visited the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial, you should do so. It is very beautiful. I love it. I was there when it first opened and I sometimes go there at night because it's one of my favorite monuments at night. And Jigger Shaw, be well, stay out of trouble. <laughs> you know, I'll try. <laughs> With Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you all next week. Thank you.